The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. Raise your hand if you have ever watched a movie repeatedly, because the first time you watched the movie, when you got to the end of the movie, you realized, oh, good grief, I didn't understand anything that was going on in the first part of the movie. Anyone? Uh, The movie Inception, or uh, (laughs) Book of Eli, or... I see dead people. You know, you watch these movies, and like in the last five minutes, you're just like, and so you want to watch the movie so that you can see, oh, I I missed that, I missed that, I missed that. And well, that's what we've been doing in this series that we're going to wrap up next week that we've called The Gospel According to Moses. But we're not looking for plot plot twists. What we're looking for is a risen Savior that doesn't just show up on the scene in Matthew chapter 1. He is a Savior that was active and present all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. And as we've bounced our way through the book of Moses, we've seen how it is that Jesus is present in the Old Testament. A lot of debate about the Old Testament, especially with the role of the Old Testament to the life of the New Testament or the New Covenant Church. Even now, there are Christians that think, well, that was written to Israel. That, that's, that's Old Testament. That's God of wrath and you know, all, the, all that bad stuff. But now we've got the New Testament, and Jesus is warm and fuzzy, and, and he makes us feel good. And so we, we study the New Testament, and, you know, don't touch the Old Testament. And, and I really think that they're missing the point of the Old Testament. And by Old Testament, I mean the first 39 books leading up to that blank page between Malachi or Malachi, the only Italian uh, prophet. Malachi... And Matthew chapter 1, that blank page covers a span of 400 years. 400 years where God no longer spoke to Israel through prophets. And so if you were a first century Jew, this is what life looked like for you. If you were a devout Jew, your life really revolved around the Old Testament scriptures, especially the Torah, the first five books of the, of the Bible written by Moses. You've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so if you were a first century Jew and you were a devout Jew, your life really revolved around what those books said because, I mean, they were huge for Israel. They covered the creation, how it is that the universe came into existence, how it is that humanity fell in the Garden of Eden, and and then eventually as God progressed through various uh, economies or or means of relating to his people, finally we have the Abrahamic covenant where God says to Abraham, I'm going to create out of you an innumerable nation and I'll be their God. And so... Israel was able to look at the Old Testament and really see how it is that they came into existence. The Old Testament contains many covenants or agreements between God and humanity as a whole or Noah or Abraham or David, all kinds of covenants, but probably what what is arguably the most important covenant is the Old Testament covenant that's embraced by the law of Moses, which is summed up by the Big Ten Commandments but fully expressed in this body of law that's some 613 commands long. So as you go through Genesis, well really I guess if you go through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you can flesh out 613 at least commandments that God gave to Israel that would regulate the way they live, the way they worship, the way they organize themselves as a political society. And so in the first century, several thousand years after all of this, you still find devout Jews trying to abide by this law. They like the law. Keep this law and receive God's blessings. Break the law and receive God's curses. But, but it's okay because God has set up a sacrificial system where at least once a year, the priesthood over top of Israel would offer sacrifices which would appease the wrath of God. And so really, it wasn't even a big deal if you didn't keep the law because if the priest would make the sacrifice, then you're good. 
So in first century Judaism, essentially, if you were a Jew, you were God's people, you were golden, life was good. It didn't matter really how good you were because you were under the law and, and they made sacrifices for you. So really, life is good. Or at least that was the mindset of Israel some 2,000 years ago when a young man named Jesus from a podunk village named Nazareth arrived on the scene and started telling the Pharisees, the religious elite of Israel, he said, hey guys, you really have no idea whatsoever what Moses or the prophets even taught. But Jesus' teachings, while they were odd, undeniably came with power. Everywhere he went, he performed miracles. We, we spent 18 months walking through the book of Mark looking at these things. He performed miracles. He raised the dead back to life. He demonstrated supernatural power even over creation. And he absolutely buried Israel under the weight of this law of Moses that they thought was so good. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, just cut it off. And, uh, Jesus, if I just start cutting off body parts that are causing me to sin, well, number one, I'm, I'll be dead. Number two, that really does no good because the problem's not here. The problem's in here. And Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's my point exactly. And so Jesus began to systematically show to Israel that the problem, the heart of the problem was the problem of Israel's heart. We've covered this before. And while many people believed Jesus and followed him, many more resisted his teachings. They rebelled against him. They hated him. And ultimately, they murdered him by the means of a state execution at the hands of the Roman government at the instigation of the religious elite, even within first century Judaism. Well, history tells us that Jesus didn't stay dead. But I would argue that that wasn't common knowledge on the day of his resurrection. And so as you go through the gospel accounts and you get to Luke 24 on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, you find that two of Jesus' disciples were talking to each other about everything that had been going on in Jerusalem, and they were just really, they were, they were bummed. And Jesus, they didn't know it was Jesus, but Jesus approached them and said, hey guys, what's going on? And they're like, have you not heard? I mean, these guys were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus about seven miles away, but they're like, how have you not heard what's been going on? And so they tell Jesus, not knowing that it's Jesus, well, there's this guy named Jesus who was executed three days ago, and we just, we, we just kind of thought that he was the Messiah. We, we had our hopes up. We thought that he was going to be the one that was going to deliver us from the oppression of the Roman Empire, who were the world rulers 2,000 years ago, and free us so that together we can again be God's people and resume our seat as as. The cream of the crop. I mean, we're God's nation. He, he's going to bring us back together. We thought Jesus was going to be that guy, but he's dead, so I guess he's not the guy. And he's not even in the tomb. We, just, we don't know what's going on, sir. And so Jesus kind of rebuked him. He said, uh, you're Jews. How do you not know that this was coming? And so uh, Luke says in chapter 24, verse 27, that in the course of this conversation between Jesus and these two disciples, he explains to them, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets, Jesus interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so you think that your fuse was blown by the sixth sense? I mean, you think that that was really just one of those, imagine how these disciples felt when they're talking to Jesus. They don't know it's Jesus. But then Jesus begins to explain to them, hey, you know, your creator, that was Jesus. That promise that God made that the offspring of the, of the woman was going to crush the serpent, that promise was about Jesus. That ark that rescued Noah and his family was a picture of Jesus. And so Jesus is just going through the Old Testament saying, uh, no, Jesus is there, he's there, he's there, he's there, he's there. We don't know what that conversation looked like. We know they had seven miles of traveling. If they were walking slow, which I would be if I was hearing all this awesomeness, we're talking several hours, if not the majority of this day, of Jesus saying, hey, there's Jesus there and there and there and there. 
And then we find out that Jesus broke bread with these disciples, and in the process, their eyes are open and they realize, it's Jesus! And so they waste no time whatsoever going back to Jerusalem. Walt's convinced they ran. Scripture doesn't say it, but Walt would have ran. Uh, the day Walt runs seven miles, where's Walt? I'm not even going to finish that thought. But they wasted no time whatsoever going back, finding the other 11 disciples and that entire group of people that's with them and explaining to them, we just encountered Jesus. He is alive. And and you're not going to believe it, but he's all throughout Scripture. And so they relayed to the apostles, to the disciples, what it is that Jesus had told them, which definitely comes out through the writings of the apostles and the disciples. So church, we've got to understand that it's our joy and our privilege of studying the entirety of Scripture, Old Testament through New, all 66 books, as Christian Scripture written to the church so that as we see Christ present through all of the pages, we can worship Him as our risen Savior as we realize that the church is not plan B. We were the plan all along. The gospel was the plan all along. Christ coming and dying for His people was the plan all along. And so we've been walking through Moses and seeing that. Reading the Bible might let us know more, but if it doesn't cause us to worship more, we're doing it wrong. Perhaps for the wrong reasons. If you can leave your Bible study and not see Jesus there, then read harder. More importantly, pray harder. Because in some way, somehow, it points to Jesus. And so we've spent the last seven weeks seeing how Jesus is either alluded to or even present all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Next week, we're going to wrap this thing up on Easter Sunday, looking at Jesus as the resurrected Passover lamb. And today, we're going to explore what I think is possibly the greatest Old Testament type or picture or forecast or shadow of the personal work of Christ through the life of a young man named Joseph. And so I'm going to go ahead and lay my cards down early. If in the next 20, 25 minutes you begin to listen to this and you think to yourself, ah, that kind of sounds like Jesus, you're getting it, all right? That's good. We're going that way. But if you want to put yourself into the story like we're so used to doing, I tell you what, Joseph had a bunch of brothers. Why don't you go ahead and just pick one and say, I'll be that one, because at the end of this we're going to realize that we're not Joseph. Jesus is Joseph. We're his brothers, okay? And so last week as Walt kind of brought us to this point, we saw that a man named Jacob wrestled with God was renamed Israel. And he was the continuation of the promise that God made to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, that God was going to create through Abraham this huge nation. And so Jacob had 12 sons and absolutely no problems playing favorites with one of them named Joseph. Joseph's brother knew that he was Jacob's favorite. I'm just going to give you a heads up. I'm talking about what's on the screen. I'm probably not going to read it word for word. You can read along, listen along. Hopefully it works out great. But Joseph's brothers knew that he was Jacob's favorite. And it's kind of hard not to because Jacob made a special coat for him, a special robe for him. It's what we might be familiar with as the coat of many colors. Uh, flannel board, anybody? You remember that one from Sunday school? Awesome little Technicolor coat. But they hated him for it. His dad had made him, made this coat for him. He was different. He was special. He was isolated. He wasn't even the baby of the family, but, but Jacob had set his affections on Joseph. And the brothers hated him for it. Where's, where's my robe? And so you can imagine how awkward it gets when Joseph has this weird dream and he calls his brothers to himself and he says, hey guys, look, I've had this crazy dream. All right, now get this. So we're all out in this field and we're putting together these bundles of wheat and, and just on its own, my bundle just stands up. It's just hanging out there. And all of you guys, your bundles came over and worshipped mine. And they're like, all right, so uh, what are you saying, Joseph? You, you're saying that you're going to rule over us, that, that we're going to bow down before you? Yeah, fat chance, idiot. And their hatred increased. And, and then he had another dream sometime later. He said, all right, guys, Dad, oh, me, listen to this one. 
I had another dream. And in this one, the sun, the moon, 11 stars were bowing down to me. Ain't that great? And the brothers were like, even his dad was like, so your mother and, and me and your we're going to bow down and worship you? Yeah, so the brothers hated him, but Jacob, he was actually willing to kind of hold on to this thought because he had wrestled with God. He knew that God had some very weird ways of doing things. And so there's Joseph, his father's beloved, dressed in robes that made him hated by his brothers, given dreams by God that he would rule over his brothers, 2,000 years before Jesus, God's beloved son, dressed in robes of righteousness and ushering in a kingdom rule would be hated by all of his brethren. And so from the get-go, we see, all right, this isn't just some random story that God has delivered to us through Moses about this dude named Joseph. We've got to put our Christocentric lens on and realize everything that we're hearing about is a picture of what's to be fulfilled to its fullest by Christ. And so over time, the hatred of Joseph by his brothers grew so severe that they decided, you know what, let's just kill the kid. 17 years old, let's just kill him. Ultimately, they decided to sell him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. You might as well profit off of it, right? I mean, if you're getting rid of your brother, put a little money in your pocket. Some of the brothers were like, ah, let's not kill him. Probably had ulterior motives. We don't have time to get into all of this story this morning. Read Genesis 37 through 50. It will blow your mind. And so they sold Joseph. They got rid of him, and they took a stupid coat. They killed a goat. A goat. They put the goat blood on the coat, and they brought it back to Jacob. And they said, hey, Dad, look what we found. Is this Joseph's coat? I mean, it kind of looks like it, but I don't know. Well, what do you think? And Jacob said, well, it is my beloved son's robe, and surely he's been devoured by an animal, and he, he's dead. And so Jacob ripped his garment open. It was the way that they really expressed their mourning and their, their anguish in that culture. And in Jacob's mind, Joseph was dead. And he might as well have been for all intents and purposes, because now he's been sold into slavery, betrayed by his brothers, rejected by everyone that he cared about, and he's gone. And so as the years pass, Joseph finds himself sold into the care of Potiphar, who himself is a high-ranking Egyptian official, maybe even the chief of the royal guard. We're not quite sure what his position was. But Joseph is not alone. Genesis chapter 39, verse 2, tells us that Yahweh, the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ himself, is with Joseph, who thrived in his work and was quite successful. He was so good at what he did that eventually he was set over top of everything that Potiphar was in charge of. He said, Joseph, Joe, I don't know what he called the boy. He said, you're so good at what you do. I mean, you, you manage my house, my land, my finances, my work. He says, the biggest problem that I've got right now is trying to figure out what I'm going to eat for lunch. And if I was Joseph, I would have said something with bacon because you can't go wrong with bacon. I've been talking about bacon all morning. <laughs> Remember, not the best part about the new covenant, but definitely a perk. Okay, that's the only thing y'all are going to know about me. So life is going pretty good now for Joseph. Yes, he's a slave, but living conditions are getting pretty cozy. And he's a handsome dude. Handsome enough and man enough at this point that now Potiphar's wife begins to eyeball this little Hebrew. I say little, he's probably in his 20s now. And day after day after day after day after day, she grabs a hold of him and she says, Joseph, we've got kids here. Joseph, why don't you hang out with me? All right, read between the lines here. And day after day after day after day, Joseph said, no, I'm not going to hang out with you. He said, look at how good Potiphar's been to me. How can I sin against God and have this relationship with you that you're wanting me to have? And so daily she's after this guy. Hang out with me. This would have been so much more powerful if kids weren't here. 
And so one day she grabbed him by the arm, said, Joe, let's go hang out. And between her grip and his speed, when he left, because he wasn't about to do that, she was left there holding on to part of his shirt or, or some part of his garment. All right, Joseph, you're not going to do that? I'll get you. And so later that day when Potiphar comes home, she has this little conversation. Potiphar, honey, sweetheart, that Hebrew that you brought into my house tried to have his way with me. Look, I've got a shirt. When he, when he tried to grab me, I screamed. And then he ran off. And look, here's a shirt right here, hon. What are you going to do about it? And so Potiphar, misguided, but understandably, I would have done at least the same, if not more, throws Joseph into prison. But again, God is with Joseph, and even in prison, everything that he does prospers, so that eventually he's elevated through the ranks of the prisoners, so that he is really the overseer of all the prisoners. Two of those prisoners we see as we go through Scripture are some of the top-ranking officials within Pharaoh's uh, organization. One of them is the cupbearer, the guy that's responsible for making sure that nobody's been poisoning Pharaoh's food or drink. And then the other one was the chief baker, who may have been the chief baker, or perhaps he oversaw all the other bakers. But regardless, they're in prison too, because Pharaoh seems to be a very uh, volatile individual. But these guys have dreams in prison. And Joseph says, well, God interprets dreams. Why don't you tell me what they are? And so they share their dreams with Joseph, who in turn says to the cupbearer, hey, I've got good news. In three days... You're getting out of here. You're going to be freed. And when you go, remember me, all right? I've done nothing to be here. I, I don't even belong in this country. I was sold by my, my brothers. I've traded hands in the pot. Just remember me, all right? Get me out of Do something. And then to the baker, he says, in three days, you'll be out of here too, but yeah, it's because you're going to be executed by Pharaoh. And understandably, Joseph didn't really ask any favors of this guy. And so a few days pass, and Joseph's dream interpretations are proven to be true. The cupbearer is restored to his position. The baker is pulled out and executed. But the cupbearer forgets all about Joseph and what Joseph had said until some more years pass. And then finally, Pharaoh himself begins to have some dreams that nobody, not his sages, his wise men, the magicians, nobody could understand what these dreams meant. And then one day the cupbearer goes, Oh, hmm, well... Well, Pharaoh, there's this one guy that, you, you remember a couple years ago when he threw me into prison. No, I'm, no, no hard feelings, it's cool. I'm, I'm, we're cool, right? But there's this guy in prison that could actually interpret dreams. And he told me that I was going to be restored. And then Pharaoh finds out that there's this boy named Joseph in prison. He says, get him, clean him, shave him, dress him, bring him here now. And so all of a sudden, Joseph, who had been in prison for years, finds himself standing in front of the king of Egypt, who says to him, I understand that you can interpret dreams. No, 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 sir. No, I, I can't, but God can, and God has, so, so what is your dream? And Pharaoh says, okay, well, here's the dream. So I'm standing by the Nile, which is this big river, and seven fat cows came up out of the water and began to eat along the bank of the river. And then seven more cows came up, but these were skinny. They were ugly. And they ate the fat cows, but actually stayed skinny when they did it. Makes sense, right? I mean, it's the kind of dream we'd all have um, if you've been eating too much bacon or pepperoni, possibly. But then he said, well, I had another dream, and there was this, ear, this, this corn stalk that's got seven good ears on it, which is just totally abnormal for a corn stalk anyways. But then he said, out of nowhere appeared these seven other ears, but they were, they were shriveled, they were diseased, and, 
And they actually overcame and enveloped the good ears of corn. I don't know what this means. Nobody knows what this means. Joseph, do you have any idea what this means? And so Joseph said, well, God's showing you what's going to happen. These dreams are symbolic because the the entire land is going to have seven years where you are going to produce crops like you've never seen before. And then the next seven years, you're going to have a famine that's going to wipe those good seven years from memory. And so Joseph not only interpreted these dreams, but he created a plan, a suggestion, just an idea that Pharaoh might be interested in. He said, Pharaoh, look, what you need to do is you need to find an individual that you can trust that can get the work done. And what they need to do is implement, execute, and oversee a system by which all of these cities beneath the empire of, of you, Pharaoh, can begin to store away a certain amount of this food each year because you're going to have seven good years, seven great years. And so you've got to figure out how to save some of this so that when the next seven years hit, not only do you have food, but you have food for people that can buy food from you. Everybody wins. They get fed, you have food, you make money. You can't go wrong, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh begins to think, man, the Spirit of God is in this guy. I'll tell you what, Joseph, you be that man. Okay. And so he makes Joseph, who had like five minutes before been in prison, he actually puts his robe on him, puts his ring on him, and elevates him to where he is second in command over the entirety of Egypt. Even gave him a wife. Got the wife, got the ring. Joseph's 30 now. He's got a swag on. And sure enough, seven good years are on the land. And even in the process of this, while he's organizing this food storage structure, he has a couple of kids. And I wish that we could dive into this, but I'm not. But here's what he named the first kid. The first kid he named Manassas, a boy. And the, way, the reason that he named him Manassas is because the name loosely means, and he fleshes this out, he says, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. God has wiped what my brothers have done, the hardness that I've endured in prison, the unfairness that I've been treated with at the hands of Potiphar. It's gone. God has removed that from me. The second son he named Ephraim, saying that God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He wasn't Egyptian. He wasn't born there, but yet God was making him prosperous and fruitful. Twenty years Joseph can say, at this point, 20 years, he has been estranged from his family, betrayed by his brothers, set up, sold into slavery, in prison, elevated now as the second command over Egypt. 20 years that he has been able to look back and say, okay, well, I never would have chosen this for myself, but God is with me now. He's blessing me now. And even though I wouldn't have done this for myself, God, I trust you, and I know that you're good, and I know that you're with me. Do you remember the night that Jesus prayed to his father in the garden? shortly before he was arrested. Do you remember what his prayer was? He said, Father, if at all possible, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this. Not that he did not want to redeem his people. But Jesus, even then, suffering under the weight of the lumen separation that for the first time in eternity he would experience between he and his Father, it, it was crushing him. We know that the blood vessels in his capillaries, they just burst and started coming through his skin. Jesus was not looking forward to what was coming. Church, we would be fools to think that the captain of our salvation jumped onto the cross and wore a chipper little smile while God crushed him. It was hell that he went through, and he willingly did it. But I tell you this, he wasn't looking forward to it. But he trusted God. Joseph never would have done any of that for himself. But he could clearly see God is in this. 
and I'll trust God. And so today in the middle of your crisis, in the middle of your own feelings of abandonment, I don't know where you are this morning. I know that every single one of us has issues somewhere. But I promise you, if you just hold on and you start to look for where God is, you can understand that He's there and you can trust Him. Joseph could, Jesus could, we could. So 20 years after being betrayed, sold, abandoned by his brothers, famine hits the land and no one is spared. Not even Jacob and the remainder of his sons who live about 250 miles away from Egypt. And so Jacob tells his boys, hey, good for nothings, don't just stand there looking at each other. Are you going to do something because we need some food? That's the boys' uh, standard version. It's currently in publication. And so all of Joseph's brothers, except for Benjamin, the youngest and the only one that's Joseph's full brother, go down into Egypt so that they can join the throngs of people that are coming from all over to buy food that is now under the authority of this governor of Egypt, who we know as Joseph, but his brothers don't recognize him. And why should they? It's been decades since they sold him and wrote him off. He's 37-ish now. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He's got the bling of an Egyptian. He's got an Egyptian wife. He even speaks Egyptian. He doesn't even speak to them in their native tongue. They have no clue that it's him. They have no reason to. But Joseph recognizes his own brothers. And so he comes up with this plan that ultimately culminates in them being accused of spies. He said, "I, I know what you're doing. You're spies. You've come here to look at our weaknesses so that you can take our food. And they're like, no, 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 no. Because remember, this is the second most powerful person in Egypt. He can snap his fingers and they're dead. They say, no, sir, we promise. We're just 12 brothers. Our youngest is at home. One of our brothers is no more. Yeah, I wonder why he's no more. But we're not spies. We just need food. And so Joseph tells them, all right, I'll give you a chance to prove that you're not spies. And so I'm going to hold on to one of you while the rest of you go back to where you came from and bring me this brother that you speak of so that I can see that you weren't making up the idea of having this other brother. He wants to see Benjamin. And so his brothers return home with their food, and on the way home, they look into the sacks of food, and they find out that the money that they had bought the food with was actually in the bag with the food they had bought. So now they had the food, they had their money, they had a lot of distance between them and Egypt, and they realize, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, something ain't right here. And so they go home, and they're like, Dad, all right, uh, bad news, Simeon, He's still there waiting for us to come back with Benjamin. But uh, all of our money is also in the bag. And so what do you think? Can can we go get Simeon? And Jacob says, you idiots. You go there, you come back, you've got the food that you bought, but you've got the money that you were supposed to buy the food with. They're going to think that you stole the food and then they're going to execute. No, you can't take Benjamin with you to get your brother. You messed up. Just write it off. I'll I can't do a daggone thing with you kids. Let's enjoy food. And so for at least a year, they go back to life as normal while Simeon's hanging out in Egypt. But then the food runs out because there's still several more years of this famine. And Jacob realizes, "Uh uh-oh, the food's running out. Uh, The only place we can get it from is Egypt. So, okay, fine. Take Benjamin. This is a very condensed (laughs) account. He says, take Benjamin. Go get your brother. Go get your food. Take twice as much money with you this time so that you can pay for the food that you came back with last time and maybe they won't kill you all. Uh, So go. And so they return to Egypt. Again, they're oblivious to his identity. Again, Joseph sets them up so that ultimately 
what he's going to do is he's going to hold on to Benjamin while the rest of the brothers go get dad. But Judah, one of the brothers, comes to him and says, Sir, you don't understand. You don't Look, my dad's getting old. And it was all I could do to convince him to let Benjamin come with us so that we could get Simeon and we could get food. If I go back to my dad and I tell him that Benjamin's here in Egypt, he's going to die. He lost one son already. This will crush him. Please, hold me instead. Take, hold me hostage. Let Benjamin go. Please don't do this to my dad. Now this is the same guy that sold Joseph into slavery decades before into the wind with what dad thought about that. Totally different person. Totally different mindset. And this realization absolutely crushed Joseph. And he kicks out the servants. He kicks out the translator that he was speaking through. He kicks out everybody but his brothers. And then Moses tells us that he begins to weep loudly. So the people outside of this hear him weeping. And he says, it's me. It's Joseph, the one who you sold into slavery. But don't be mad. Don't be upset. God has done this so that I can go before you and preserve you. It's me. It's Joseph. And he kissed his brothers. And he wept on them. A couple times during this, he has to leave the room and just weep because he misses his brothers so much. And he loves them even though 20-some years before, they had beat him, threw him into a pit, and sold him into slavery. There is no hate, no bitterness, no regret. Nothing but one directional, unconditional love from a man who endured decades of betrayal, pain, and unfairness so that through him, his family would be saved. Just a boy who had done nothing to deserve the way he was treated. And yet through his life, 2,000 years before Jesus was born, Yahweh used this kid to become the savior of his family, what was to become the nation of Israel. Why did he do that? So that we now in this new covenant... We can look back and see Joseph leaping from the pen, or see Jesus leaping from the pen of Moses, and we can worship God for being able to see Jesus at work all the way through this thing. Joseph was a shepherd. Jesus is our great shepherd. Joseph was beloved by his father. Jesus, beloved by his father. Joseph was hated and envied by his brothers. So was Jesus. Joseph was hated for his message. Jesus was killed and hated for his message. Joseph prophesied his future sovereignty. Jesus did the same. Joseph was sent by his father to his brothers. Jesus was sent by his father to the lost sheep of Israel who would become his brothers. Joseph sought out his brothers, did not stop till he found them. Jesus searched for us and we were found. Joseph was seeking the welfare of his brothers. Jesus came not to condemn us, but to save us. Joseph was conspired against multiple times. Jesus was as well. Joseph's brothers did not believe his dreams. Jesus' own flesh and blood brothers did not believe his words either. Joseph was stripped of his coat. Jesus too was stripped. Joseph was cast into a pit. Jesus was put into a tomb. Joseph was taken out of the pit alive. Jesus came out of his pit alive as well. Joseph was sold as a slave. Jesus sold for the price of a slave. Judah suggested that Joseph be sold. The Greek name for Judah is Judas, who betrayed and sold Jesus. Joseph's coat was sprinkled with blood and presented to his father. Jesus became our scapegoat and presented his blood to his father as an offering for our sins. Joseph became a servant. Jesus was the greatest servant. Joseph's master was well pleased with him. The father was always pleased with Jesus. Joseph uh, was made a blessing to others. Jesus, a blessing for the world. Joseph was a good man, an upright man. Jesus, a perfect man. 
Joseph was tempted repeatedly to sin and sinned not. Jesus, who knew every temptation that we would ever face, was tempted beyond what we are, and yet he sinned not. Joseph was falsely accused. Jesus was too. Joseph attempted no defense of himself, and at his trial, Jesus remained silent. Though innocent, Joseph was cast into prison. Though innocent, Jesus was condemned to death. Joseph suffered at the hands of Gentiles. Jesus was murdered by the hands of Gentiles. Joseph won the respect of his jailer, and at Calvary, a Roman centurion said, This is the Son of God. Joseph was numbered with transgressors. So was Jesus. Joseph pronounced blessings on one whom he was imprisoned with, and Jesus said to the thief at his side, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Joseph gave the credit for his knowledge of the future to God. Jesus did the same. Joseph told the cupbearer, Remember me. Jesus says, Drink this cup in remembrance of me. Joseph, while put into prison, wasn't allowed to remain there because God wasn't done with him. And Jesus, though in prison in the tomb, wasn't allowed to remain there because God was not done with his son either. It was an act of God that delivered Joseph from prison. It was an act of God that raised Jesus from the prison of death. Joseph changed prison clothes for clothes of glory. Jesus arose in a glorified body. Joseph warned of imminent danger and urged his hearers to make provision. Jesus said, I am the provision. Come to me. Joseph gained a reputation as a great counselor. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Joseph was given a Gentile bride. So was Jesus. Us. Joseph was exalted and set over all of Egypt. Jesus is exalted over all the earth, all his creation. Joseph was 30 when his ministry began. Jesus was 30 when his began. Joseph alone is seen giving food to perishing people. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Joseph became a savior for many people. Jesus is the savior of the world. Joseph had unlimited resources for his people, and in Christ there is no limit to the riches of God's grace which he has lavished upon us. Pharaoh asked, is there any man like Joseph? In church, there is no man like Jesus who lived the life that we never could, paid a debt that we could never pay, so that in that he could redeem us to be his people, pure, holy, and spotless before his Father, purchased to be his bride. Jesus is the greatest Joseph. And so as Choose comes back forward and, and prepares to lead us in a couple songs, church, I want to make... I know our time's fleeting, but I want to make, make one more parallel. When I started this thing, I told you, is, is when we fit into this thing where it is that we see ourselves, it's not as Joseph, though perhaps we can identify a little bit. But we're not Joseph. We're his brothers. And yet at the end of this amazing story, though Joseph's brothers treated him horribly, how did Jesus receive them? He reconciled himself with them. He said, I'm not mad. I don't hate you. And in an infinitely greater way, Jesus is even now revealing himself to us, saying, this forgiveness that I have purchased, it's for you. I did this for you, if you're willing to trust me. 2,000 years before Jesus was born into human flesh, he never left Joseph's side in this picture of the gospel that we can look at now to realize that the gospel has been God's plan from the get-go. And perhaps you're sitting there loving the fact that God loves you, that Jesus has saved you, but Maybe you're wondering, well, if God loved Joseph so much, if this was God's plan from the get-go, then why let Joseph, who God loved, endure this misery? Why is he letting me go through what it is that I'm going through? Why does God let his children suffer hell on earth? And Joseph himself answers that for us. 
Because 40 years after being put into a pit and sold into slavery, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph looks his brothers in the eyes and says, you meant this for evil. But God, God meant it for good. Not God's taking the best out of a bad situation, but God intended this, meant for this to happen, for His good, because He can see things in a way infinitely greater than we can. Had Jesus sat in the pit with a scared and crying Joseph, 17 years old, I can see Jesus putting His arm around him saying, hang on, son, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt so... I can't even tell you how bad this is going to hurt. You're going to be betrayed. You're going to be neglected. You're going to be abandoned. But hold on, son. I'm with you. I will never, ever, ever leave you. And though you might not even see it, and though, church, you might never see it on this side of the cross, Jesus says, I'm with you and I'm using this for your good. And he gives that same promise to his church today. So I'll leave us with this thought as Choose comes forward and sings a couple of songs and gives us space to worship. Our journey marker for the week is this. As our rescuer, our brother Jesus can be trusted with our life. And so the gospel, the good news, the person, the work, the ministry of Christ, seen from Genesis all the way through Revelation, promises that Jesus can be trusted not just with our soul, but with our life. So wherever you are this morning, whether you need to trust Him with your soul or with the circumstances in life that you absolutely hate, will you trust Him this morning? Fathers, we prepare to sing and worship you for your awesomeness. Father, it's so wonderful seeing undeniably your son being written through the pages of Moses 1,500 years before he took on human flesh. So that 1,900 years before Jesus was born, this young man named Joseph, who was betrayed, left for dead, abused, beaten, and set up for failure, ultimately became the rescuer of Israel. And so, Father, in His cross, in His suffering, as we look at the, even this week, Passion Week, seeing what it is that Jesus endured for us, we know that, that that was Your plan. That Jesus suffered that on our behalf so that He could bring many brothers and sisters to glory. So, Father, help us to trust Him. Help us when we can't see Him. Lord, You never spoke to Joseph. You never once spoke to him. But He knew You were there. Give us that same faith, Lord. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.